0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today, we're going to talk about space. And NASA's most recent program intended to put American astronauts back on the moon and eventually to go beyond the moon. But first... Let's do a quick look back into the history of the space program. So back in the early 1960s, the United States was in a fierce competition with the then Soviet Union. The Soviets had shocked Americans upon the launch of the satellite Sputnik. That was the first man-made object launched into orbit around the earth. Sputnik didn't really do a whole lot other than send out a little beep of a radio signal as it traveled miles above the Earth's surface. But the implications of that launch were enormous. First, the fact that the Soviets could launch an object into orbit suggested that the USSR also had the capability of launching, say, you know, a missile somewhere else, like across the world at the United States, Coupled with a nuclear warhead, that was a chilling thought. The U.S. and the USSR held a great deal of animosity for each other, which is putting it lightly, or at least the governments of those countries did, and each government supported an awful lot of propaganda aimed at vilifying the other side. Uh, As a child of the 80s, I remember a lot of sort of anti-Soviet, anti-Russian kind of messaging in pop culture and beyond. Well, anyway, the second part of this is that the world is a stage, as Shakespeare once wrote. And on that stage, the Soviets were poised to take on the role of most technologically and scientifically advanced nation on the planet— And that was something that the U.S. government wasn't too keen on either. And so there was a very strong incentive to give the U.S. space industry its own shot in the arm to catch up and then ultimately to pass the Soviet space program. The space race would showcase the best and worst of human traits. Among the best were ingenuity, problem solving, collaboration, exploration, and curiosity. Among the worst, you had pride, you had boasting, not to mention the fact that the finish line kept getting pushed back whenever one side would achieve something notable. Like you might say, oh, well, really, the real test is to put the first person up in space, and then the Soviets did that, and the Americans said, well... Really, the the real test is docking two spacecraft in space together. And then the Americans did that. And the Soviets said, well, really, it's. And so they kept pushing that back until finally it got to. The real goal isn't to put something into orbit, but to get to the moon. And that was viewed as the ultimate goal, the ultimate finish line. Now, I mean, for reals. A lot of the space race was really just about moving those goalposts so that one side could not easily declare victory and superiority over the other side. And yes, it is more than a little bit childish. It might remind you of kids playing a game where they keep changing the rules whenever it seems like they're losing. However... That childish desire is also what helped drive, and perhaps more importantly, fund the actual engineering and science that would lead to some of the greatest achievements in human history. These are achievements that would spin off numerous beneficial technologies that we rely upon and benefit from today. Anyway, in 1963, the U.S. space agency NASA initiated a new program named Apollo, And this was an official response to a promise that had been made in 1961 by U.S. President John F. Kennedy. He announced a commitment to get astronauts to the moon by the end of that decade. Now, in Greek mythology, Apollo is the son of Zeus. He's the god of the arts, of poetry, and of the sun. The Apollo missions saw several successful moon landings, beginning with Apollo 11 in July 1969 and ending with Apollo 17 in December 1972. The program also had its share of tragedy. In 1967, three astronauts died in a pre-flight test when a fire broke out in the cockpit of the command module. NASA would later designate this mission, originally known as Apollo 204, Apollo 1 in an effort to honor the three astronauts who lost their lives in this accident. Apollo 17 would mark the last time a human would set foot on the moon, and that stands true up to the date of this recording. No human has been back to the moon since December 1972. And that's what brings us to today's topic, because once again, NASA and numerous partnering companies and organizations are looking to send people back to the moon's surface. This time, the goal is to include women astronauts in the project, something that just didn't happen back in the 60s and 70s. The new program is called Artemis. Now, like Apollo, the name Artemis comes to us from Greek mythology. She's actually Apollo's twin sister, which makes sense. This is sort of the twin sister project to Apollo. Now, frankly, I would argue Artemis is much better suited as a name for this project because she's the goddess of the moon. She's also the goddess of, you know, the wilderness and hunting and other stuff. The Greek gods were famous multitaskers. As goddess of the moon, she does have the perfect name for the NASA endeavor to put people up there. She did not just spring into being either in mythology or in the space project. In space terms, Artemis follows some earlier attempts to get astronauts back to the moon. She's sort of the evolution of some earlier programs that have since been either canceled or just uh, transformed. So this means we need to look at a span of time between the Apollo missions and the upcoming Artemis missions. In the first decade of the 21st century, NASA announced a program called Constellation. The scope of Constellation was pretty darn big. It laid out the many advances NASA identified as being pivotal for the most extensive missions to the moon and beyond. It called for the retirement of the space shuttle program. It was already on its way out, and so the reason for that was that the space shuttle program was limited in its ability. Really, it could only go into orbit. It can't go to the moon or beyond. And also, uh, the Columbia disaster had brought up serious questions about the viability of the space shuttle program in general. It was an aging fleet of spacecraft. So this particular constellation program laid out requirements for a new type of spacecraft called Orion. Orion. Uh, also known as the Crew Exploration Vehicle. And it's similar to the old Apollo capsules, but it's actually larger and has a lot more features and could support a crew of astronauts uh, on a mission to the moon and back or extended trips to the International Space Station. Uh, I'll talk more about the Orion in detail a little bit later. So the Constellation program, in turn, was a response to a call from the U.S. President George W. Bush And he was asking NASA to really shoot for these goals. He wanted something really aspirational and inspirational to kind of get people excited about this. Presidents tend to do this, by the way, when they need a kind of a a boost in their own popularity. It's great that we benefit from it from a scientific perspective, but it does not always come from a genuine desire to push science. Sometimes that desire is more linked to the politics of the situation than the actual scientific goal of the situation. And in fact, there were plenty of people who argued that this whole approach was not the right thing for NASA to do, that putting people back on the moon didn't really solve any big issues or didn't open up any other opportunities. We had already been to the moon. People were arguing that maybe we wouldn't be able to learn anything new by going back to the moon that we should instead dedicate our uh, efforts toward other things. But the moon is one of those things that's easy to point at and say, that is a big challenge. How do we get back there? And then you can worry about the other stuff later on down the line. I think that there is value of going back to the moon, by the way. I don't want to dismiss it out of hand. But I can see the validity of arguments that state maybe we should look at other goals instead Uh, Goals that might have a more obvious payout in either the benefits we get from technological advancement or the direct result of the missions themselves. So I can see both sides of both arguments. Um, And so I haven't, I guess I haven't really fully made up my mind of which side I really subscribe to. Anyway, so we get this deadline set for this idea of going back to the moon. The the vehicle, the Orion spacecraft, was supposed to be ready by 2014. And then you had the goal of actually getting people back on the moon by 2020. It is 2020, and spoiler alert, that ain't going to happen this year. NASA Administrator Michael Griffin unveiled this plan in 2005, and that included a plan for two new rocket systems that would provide the oomph needed to get the Orion spacecraft out into space on its way to the moon or the International Space Station. And those rockets were the Ares one and the Ares V launch vehicles. No two and three, just one and five. And they were, or four, I should say. But one and five were also meant to kind of mirror the Saturn I and Saturn V rockets that were used in previous NASA programs. Ares-1 was the smaller of the two rockets. That one was intended to launch payloads like the Orion spacecraft and its crew into orbit. The Ares-5 would be a heavy lifting rocket, and it would be used to launch significant amounts of of payload into space, of cargo. So if you wanted to create, say, a a moon station, you know, to actually build a station on the moon, you would use a series of Ares-5 rockets to launch those payloads into space, and then presumably you would find a way of getting them to the moon for uh, construction. So it's not that different from models like SpaceX, where they have the Falcon 9 rocket or launch vehicle that can send a uh, capsule into space, or the Falcon 9 Heavy, which is meant to push much heavier payloads into space. Developing the rockets would be another really big task on top of building this Orion spacecraft. But this was a a thing that Griffin thought was necessary. Lunar missions are going to require a lot of support systems in order to make sure the astronauts can get to the moon, they can land there, they can operate on the moon, and then they can return from the moon safely back to Earth. That requires a lot of work. So according to NASA estimates, relying on older launch vehicles like the Delta or Atlas rockets would require many more launches to get the required equipment back into space. So that would drive up the cost of the program. And Griffin was saying, well, it's going to cost a huge amount of money to develop new rockets, but it will cost another huge amount of money if we rely on older rockets because we'll have to use more of them. And so he was weighing those two options and ultimately decided that it made more sense to push for brand new launch systems. Now, spoiler alert, this whole plan that was laid out in 2005 did not pan out at least not as Constellation had laid it all out. We didn't have a spacecraft ready in time, nor are we ready to put anyone on the moon this year. And one of the main contributors to the shortfall was down to budget. The original Apollo program had a budget of $25.8 billion from 1960 to 1973. If we adjust that for inflation and look at it in today's money, that would come out to about $260 billion, a truly princely sum. But that was across the entire lifespan of uh, the Apollo program, not just one particular year. In 1966, the peak year for the Apollo program from a budgetary perspective, the agency spent the equivalent of $47.8 billion in today's money. And that was just for the Apollo program. So the budget for all of NASA in 2005, not just Constellation, but all the programs that NASA oversees, was $15.6 billion. That's a lot less than $47.8 billion. Trust me, I ran the math. Even adjusted for inflation, that comes out to just under $17 billion. It is an enormous Uh, amount less than what was spent in 1966 or the equivalent of what was spent in 1966. And yet Griffin was describing Constellation as Apollo on steroids. So that got a lot of people asking, can you really design Apollo on steroids if you're using a budget that's less than half of what Apollo's program spent in 1966? So, This was a question that a lot of people were asking, and ultimately the answer appears to be, no, you can't really do it. So despite having access to less money, NASA still really tackled this challenge. I mean, a lot of people poured a ton of work and effort into trying to make this happen. In 2009, the agency released a statement saying the Orion would not be ready for a 2014 launch. They were hoping that they could maybe make it a 2015 deadline. Um... But here's the thing, while on on the surface that says, oh, it's a delay of just one year, that's actually not that bad, especially when you consider the budgetary restraints. It actually was three years later than what Griffin had been hoping for. He had hoped to be, have the Orion ready for launch by 2012. So now they were sure it wasn't going to be ready till at least 2015. The agency was really trying to narrow a gap that was going to exist. When the space shuttles retired... And the USA would no longer have a spacecraft capable of launching and docking with the newly finished International Space Station. So the ISS gets finished around 2010. That's the same time the space shuttle program retires. Now the USA is reliant on other countries and their space program in order to get astronauts to and from the space station, uh, typically Russia. So that's not ideal. And uh, they were waiting on commercial space companies like SpaceX to catch up, but that just hadn't happened yet. So the real hope was that the Orion spacecraft could take over those duties and make USA independent of other countries and also of commercial spacecraft uh, companies where NASA would be owning and operating these vehicles. But that just wasn't going to happen. That gap was going to get wider and wider, not narrower. NASA did have a cost overrun of $3.1 billion, though, again, this was much less than what the agency spent during the Apollo program years. But that delay of the program and the 26% overrun in costs gave Constellation a really bad reputation. That was a reputation that President Barack Obama actually referenced back in 2008. NASA also predicted that the program would continue to cost more than had been originally projected, with an increase of about 140% of the original budget marked out for the years between 2010 and 2014. Not great news. On top of that, the focus of NASA was almost entirely on the Orion spacecraft and the Ares-1 launch vehicle. Again, no big surprise here. The idea of sending people to the moon is generally one that people really get excited about, and excitement translates into governments approving bigger budgets because, you know, representatives want to support the things that their constituents are really excited about. But that meant that the Ares 5 rocket, the heavy lifting rocket, had a much smaller development budget. The all the focus was on the the crewed stuff, the Orion crude as in C-R-E-W-E-D, the Orion spacecraft and the Ares 1 launch vehicle, not the Ares 5. But the Ares 5 was going to need a lot of money. I mean this was a, a heavy lifting rocket concept. But that meant that because it didn't get that big budget, the development was getting delayed over and over again. And that led to a point where analysts believed that based on the budgetary trajectory, at NASA, the earliest the Ares 5 rocket would be able to launch the lunar landing hardware that would be necessary to actually land on the moon would be sometime in the 2030s, if that were at all possible even then. So that would delay that that deadline of landing on the moon by more than a decade. The idea here was that the space agency would put a lunar landing spacecraft into Earth orbit, and it was to be called the Lunar Surface Access Module, or LSAM. Uh, later it was renamed the Altair. And an Ares 5 would launch this Altair into Earth orbit because uh, it was heavier than the Orion spacecraft. So you wouldn't want to use like an Ares 1 rocket. You'd need the heavy lifting rocket there. A separate Ares 1 rocket would launch an Orion spacecraft into Earth orbit. And then the Orion spacecraft would rendezvous with the orbiting Altair. The two would dock. And then together, they would make the rest of the trip to the moon. Upon entering lunar orbit, the two spacecraft could separate. The entire crew of the Orion could move over into the Altair because the Orion would be automated and it would just remain in orbit around the moon. Then the Altair would land on the moon. The astronauts would go out and, you know, do moon stuff. Then they would come back to the Altair launch off the moon, back into orbit, dock with the Orion, transfer back over to the Orion spacecraft, and then they could make the trip back to Earth. But because of these budget limitations, the focus on the Orion and the Ares one vehicles meant that all of this other stuff, the Ares V and the lunar module, all of that just remained hypothetical. It was a proposal, not an actual spacecraft. So while the agency might have produced an Orion spacecraft in time to get into space by 2015, there was just no hope of making enough progress to land on the moon any earlier than the 2030s, and some people thought that even that was too ambitious. Meanwhile, NASA, the agency, was struggling with budget constraints in general, not just for the Constellation program. Sometimes one project would have to siphon funds intended for a totally different project. You had a lot of internal battles in NASA, as different project leads would kind of squirrel budgetary money away that was intended for some other project for their own. That did not help morale in the agency, and moreover, it was never enough to cover all the costs that were mounting up. In 2010, NASA received its new budget from the U.S. government, and that budget listed zero for the Constellation project. I'll explain more in just a moment, but we'll take a quick break. So why did the U.S. government pull the plug in 2010 on the Constellation Project? Well, it's actually pretty complicated to answer that, but it comes down to several factors. So for one thing, the design specs for the various components in the Constellation Project had changed over time. Some of them had changed a few times since 2005. The team made various determinations that then led them down different paths requiring NASA to invest more in new technologies and new designs and launch craft and the initial plan would have seen using uh, them using more components that already existed, right? That were already in production. But a lot of the decisions they made meant, oh, no, we're going to have to actually make new stuff. So that meant that the process was going to take longer and also cost more. The prospects didn't look promising as far as achieving goals on time. So that was another strike against it. And you also had the case of a change in political administrations, which frequently shakes things up with government-funded projects. In fact, that's one of the biggest challenges NASA faces with space travel. It's not just the incredibly difficult task of designing technology capable of bringing people into space safely and back home again. It's dealing with a changing political climate that may have vastly different priorities than the previous administration, which in turn can mean that the funding you were counting on early in the project disappears midway through the project. And that's, that just means it's the end of your, your, your whole process. What a way to run a space railroad, right? So in 2008, when Obama won the presidency, one of the things that followed was a change in NASA administrators. He and his advisors had a different set of priorities than the previous administration, which included dedicating more money toward commercial space companies like SpaceX, rather than going down the traditional path in which NASA would contract with big companies like Boeing or Lockheed. Griffin resigned upon Obama taking office, which in turn is not an unusual thing to happen when you have a change in administrations. It's not, it's not uh, out of the realm of of, uh, of normal you know, practice for administrators to resign in those cases. It often happens. His replacement would eventually be Charles Bolden, himself a a former astronaut, though it would take several months before Bolden would uh, be appointed that position and confirmed as the new administrator of NASA. These challenges are part of why the private space industry was able to get a foothold. Private companies aren't beholden to a government for their budgets, although a private company might find itself burning through its startup cash before it can become a viable business. And private space companies like SpaceX were becoming prominent right around the same time, which in turn created a chance to rely on those companies for key components rather than having them all be designed or contracted through NASA. After a committee evaluated Constellation and determined that the program simply could not succeed given its very ambitious goals coupled with its very limited resources, the project got the axe. It wasn't necessarily that the project was bad, just that its reach was further than its grasp. NASA was to shift money over to long range goals, such as developing new heavy lift rockets and propulsion systems to be used in space, all with an eye toward powering missions to Mars in the future. The Ares rockets and the Orion were scrapped, at least temporarily. Congress reacted negatively to these changes because, well, mostly because they weren't included in the decisions. Obama amended his decision after encountering intense opposition from certain members of Congress, and he brought Orion back into the picture, so it no longer was scrapped, it was now back on the docket, and he set a deadline for a new launch system to be ready to go by 2015. Congress then took that plan and tweaked it by giving NASA the directive to repurpose the rocket designs for the Constellation project, and have that ready to go by 2016. The new launch vehicle would be called the Space Launch System, or SLS. One of Obama's advisors said it was was pretty clear that members of Congress were doing their best to keep contracts with big companies that had been involved in Constellation, indicating that this might have been some sort of, you know, smoky-filled room politicking going on here, rather than, you know, technical discussions. One other goal in this era was to develop a mission in which NASA would send astronauts to an asteroid, again, as sort of a staging ground for an eventual mission to Mars. And that's where things mostly stayed during Obama's administration. NASA was working on developing these initiatives, and the private space industry began to grow at the same time. Now, ultimately, that asteroid mission would get scrapped, but it would stick around for quite some time. Now, when Donald Trump won the presidency, things would change again. So one thing you do often see with these changes in administrations is that a succeeding administration will attempt to set more ambitious goals than the preceding one. It's a way for presidents to kind of set themselves apart and to try and get the nation excited about some particular initiative. So Obama's administration was looking at the moon and asteroids, with a further goal being Mars in the future. Trump's approach was similar in that it was moon and then straight on to Mars. Now, I'm not going to go into all the budget details here, except to say despite the fact that you kept seeing these lofty goals in place, you didn't necessarily see an enormous boost in budgets at NASA. Certainly nothing close to the peak that was spent back in 1966 with the Apollo program. The budget fluctuated year to year. In 2016, it was $19 billion. But a year later, the budget had reduced down to $18.8 billion. In 2018, it would bounce back to $19.5 billion. But it kind of hovered right around that area, you know, just under $20 billion. And there's still political battles being fought around the subject of relying on commercial space companies like SpaceX versus going the traditional route where NASA lands contracts with specific big companies like Boeing and Lockheed in order to build spacecraft. These battles typically play out with congressional representatives from states that rely on big manufacturing jobs with those companies like Boeing and Lockheed, arguing that the key elements of any mission should ultimately be owned and operated by NASA. Then others say that the financially responsible thing to do is to outsource this to commercial space companies whom they argue can do the same work but for less money. And a lot of these arguments come down to financial and political matters, again, not technological decisions, and it gets really messy. Tech is way easier to explain. In April 2019, NASA announced that the Artemis program and its ambitious goal of putting a man and woman on the moon by 2024 would become a reality. Of course, we have to remember that elements of this plan had been in development since 2005 because the SLS is largely built upon the bones of the proposed Ares V rocket design. Heck, the Orion spacecraft, which will actually hold the crew of a NASA Artemis mission, has been the one piece that's been most consistently in development since George W. Bush was president. In February 2020, The document titled Moon 2024 Mission Manifest made the rounds. Now, NASA has since disputed the contents of this document, saying that it does not accurately reflect the current state of the Artemis program. However, as of the time of this recording, it's the most recent version of the plan I can find. Everything else is kind of gone dark. So I'll explain the the manifest version of the mission here with the caveat that things have already changed. But this plan kind of gives us a peek into the ambition surrounding the Artemis program, even if the subsequent plan that will get announced probably right around the time this episode publishes might have more details. So here we go. In April, 2021, according to this manifest, NASA would test a Block 1 SLS launch vehicle carrying an unmanned Orion spacecraft in a mission dubbed Artemis 1. So that raises a question, what's a Block 1 SLS? Well, the SLS is designed in a way that will allow NASA to swap out elements further down the line to give it a a boost in performance. Specifically, it will allow NASA to include more powerful boosters and rockets that are intended to get a crew to Mars. But those are still being designed and constructed. And so we don't even have an example to point at for the the more advanced ones. And rather than wait on all of that to finish before making any other progress, NASA has placed a strategy in which an initial version of the space launch system, Block 1, will be used to get the Orion into orbit or to send it to the moon. In the future, we'll get a more powerful Block 2 SLS that would be able to send the Orion and cargo to Mars. So how does all this play out? Well, keep in mind that the Block 2 doesn't really exist yet, so things could change dramatically by the time we actually have something built, if it even gets built. The Block 1 SLS is the version that's currently being uh, finalized now, and it will have two boosters— similar to the space shuttle. And it will also have a core stage, like a, a central like rocket tank with four engines. The uh, pair of solid propellant rocket boosters are really similar to what the space shuttle used. In fact, some of the early SLS launch vehicles uh, will be using old, uh, unused space shuttle booster casings. Then in the future, uh, new casings will have to be made because we'll have run out of ones that weren't used in the space shuttle program. But the old space shuttle boosters had four segments of solid propellant rocket fuel. The Block 1 SLS boosters uh, will have five segments. The core stage, that central rocket, uh, will have four engines and it will use liquid propellant. Once in space and the Orion spacecraft separates from its launch vehicle, The Orion spacecraft will use what is called the Interim Cryogenic Propulsion Stage to travel to its destination, such as the Moon. This version of the SLS will be able to send 57,000 pounds, or 26 metric tons, of payload into space. In fact, it will be able to deliver payloads of that size into orbits beyond the Moon. Now, between Block 1 and Block 2, NASA also plans a version of the SLS called Block 1B. It'll have a little bit more oomph. The uh, central core will have more fuel. It'll be a bigger uh, fuel tank. And it will be able to put not just the Orion spacecraft into orbit, but an orbiting habitat up into space. It can lift a heavier payload up into space, creating opportunities for missions and, and more ambitious goals. Uh, Block 2's goal is to create a launch vehicle capable of putting 45 tons of payload into deep space and will be used for missions that aim to go to Mars. All right, so let's get back to this timeline that has since been disputed by NASA. So according to that original timeline, or at least the manifest timeline, uh, NASA planned for the first crewed Orion mission, the first mission to have astronauts aboard the Orion spacecraft, Uh, which would be called the Artemis II mission, would launch in January 2023. The mission will use a Block One SLS as the launch vehicle, and it would see the astronauts go on a path around the moon and back to Earth, not landing on the moon, but doing an orbit of the moon and then returning. Or maybe not even a full orbit. I think it's just a a flyby behind the, the moon, similar to some of the earlier Apollo missions. In August 2024, NASA plans to launch the Artemis 3 mission. This mission's purpose is to send a lunar lander to the moon on a Block 1B SLS. More on the whole lunar lander thing in a bit, because that part of the plan has definitely changed a couple of times. October 2024 is the big one. That would be a mission called Artemis 4, and the purpose would be to send astronauts to actually set foot on the moon, including at least one woman. This mission would use a Block 1 SLS to send the Orion to rendezvous with a thing around the moon's orbit. We'll get back to that because it has changed. It originally was just going to be a lunar lander. Now it's slightly different. And this does not end the Artemis program, right? The, the landing on the moon is not the ultimate end of Artemis. NASA plans a few other missions. Uh, one would happen in September 2025. This one is not, uh, not technically an Artemis mission, but it will use the same spacecraft. It'll use uh, the, the SLS Block 1 uh, in order to launch a satellite called the Europa Clipper, And this one would fly over to Jupiter and get an orbit around Jupiter and do flybys of Jupiter's moon Europa to get a closer look. And part of the purpose of this mission is to see if Europa has environments that could potentially support life. So that's really exciting. Uh, Then in June 2026, NASA plans to send another mission to the moon. This one designated Artemis 5, with more astronauts visiting old Luna using a Block 1b SLS to get there. So this is the slightly larger uh, version of the SLS. The following June, NASA would launch a lander to head to Europa, giving us an even closer look at Jupiter's moon because we'd have a a lander setting foot, a lander, uncrewed lander uh, setting foot or landing on Europa. But uh, that would be super cool. In August 2028, NASA according to this manifest, would plan to launch the Artemis 6 mission, which would once again take astronauts to the moon, but this time aboard a Block 1B SLS. And in February 2029, Artemis 7 would send cargo to the moon and would be the first mission to rely on a Block 2 SLS. August 2029 also brings us to Artemis uh, 8. And that is also using a Block II SLS to send people, astronauts, aboard an Orion mission. I have no idea where that one's specifically going. It might be a mission to test the Block II for a manned spaceflight mission in general. Um, But maybe it's going to the moon. I don't know. The manifest was unclear. And the final two Artemis missions that were in that manifest included a uh, 2030 one called Artemis 9 that would be a cargo mission using an SLS Block 2, and an Artemis 10 that would also use a astronaut-led mission on a Block 2 SLS. So that's what the manifest had laid out, which NASA, again, has disputed, saying that there are numerous uh, errors or discrepancies with their current plan. But that's the most information I have as of the recording of this podcast. It gives us a general idea of what they were thinking. When we come back, I'll talk about some other things that have complicated this, but first let's take a quick break. As I record this, we're in a blackout on information about further details of the Artemis program, largely because NASA is in contract negotiations with multiple companies for different parts of this program. So there's a lot of details that haven't been nailed down. There's nothing to share because they haven't decided which version they're going with on some of these things. Meanwhile, the clock is ticking. But while we don't have concrete facts to talk about, we can at least go over what NASA has in mind. Now, I've mentioned the Orion spacecraft several times without really going into any real detail about it. Again, out of all the pieces for the Artemis program, this one has had the most consistent support behind it since 2005. The first Orion spacecraft has been completed in in manufacturing, so it's something that we can actually talk about because there is one. Uh, It hasn't been used yet, but it exists. It has changed a few times since its original concept. Uh, The prime company responsible for building the Orion spacecraft is Lockheed. Now, lots of folks call Orion a gumdrop-shaped spacecraft. And to me, it looks really similar in design of the old Apollo capsules. But it's larger and fancier than this old spacecraft. It could carry more people. The Apollo spacecraft would carry a crew of three. The Orion is designed to carry a crew of four. A lot of the uh, documentation says that it could carry a crew of up to six. But NASA consistently describes it as being a four-person spacecraft. It is capable of traveling in space for 21 days, or it can uh, exist out in space for up to six months when docked with some other spacecraft like the International Space Station. NASA's plan is to crew the Orion spacecraft with four astronauts, though, as I said before, it could potentially hold as many as six, at least according to most documentation I've, I've read. The crew module, which is the bit that the astronauts will actually be in, is the part that looks like an old Apollo capsule, but bigger. It has 316 cubic feet of habitable volume. The old Apollo spacecraft had numerous dials, switches, buttons, and screens all over the place. Uh, But the Orion has just three computer screens, and it distills all of those various technologies that were represented by those buttons and dials and switches, into a computer-controlled system accessible through on-screen commands, which in itself is a pretty big departure and a big bet. It's one of those things that makes some people nervous, the idea that you have uh, these computerized systems and you question, well, what happens if something goes wrong? How do you take manual control of a spacecraft? I've already talked about the SLS, but there's a third part of that that we need to mention really quickly, which is what NASA calls the Exploration Ground Systems, or EGS. I would call that a launch pad. Uh, The SLS will use new ones constructed for that purpose, and the project will also make use of two new spacesuit designs. But uh, rather than go into detail about those spacesuits, I'm going to save that for its own podcast to talk about the evolution of the spacesuit and how... Uh, That has changed over the past few decades. To actually visit the moon, NASA does have some other plans. And one of those now is the Lunar Gateway. Before, I was talking about a lunar lander that the Orion would have uh, presumably rendezvoused with around orbit in the moon and then gone down to the surface. But um, things have changed since then. So here's how it's supposed to work. You have... What is essentially a lunar satellite or lunar space station, this not as big as the International Space Station, but a a station in orbit around the moon itself. And NASA would launch this in parts, in several launches, and then construct it in space around lunar orbit. And when finished, it should be the size of a studio apartment, according to NASA, capable of supporting astronauts for Several months at a time, if necessary. Orion would be uh, docking with this Gateway satellite or Gateway station in order to go to moon missions. And astronauts would not stay aboard the lunar Gateway all year round. Instead, they would just be there for the duration of a mission before departing in the Orion capsule to come back home. Um, and you would have to occasionally or frequently send uh, r- cargo up to replenish. The Lunar Gateway. From the, uh, the Gateway, astronauts would board a spacecraft that would be a type of transfer module. So they would dock their Orion capsule with the Lunar Gateway, transfer over into the Lunar Gateway, get stuff ready for their moon adventures. Then they would go over into this transfer module, and that would uh, detach from the Lunar Gateway it would make its way to the descent point for the moon's surface. It would then separate so that you would have a descent stage, a descent module that would go down and land on the surface of the moon. Astronauts would then do their thing on the lunar surface using the uh, the descent stage as sort of a, a base of operations for up to two weeks. Then they would board the part of that module that would be the ascent module. So this is the part that actually launches back off of the moon's surface, uh, leaving part of it behind, right? So everyone piles into the ascent module, they launch, and then that puts them into a trajectory where they can rendezvous with the lunar gateway, dock with it, and come back to that studio apartment floating around the surface of the moon. They could then continue work in the lunar gateway, or they could transfer over to the Orion spacecraft for the journey home. Now that part of the plan is largely being left to commercial space programs. So this is really not a description of a specific piece of technology. It's more of a description of what NASA wants in order for them to be able to have these missions work. So it's more like, this is what the technology needs to be able to do, but we're leaving it up to various companies to present proposals on how they want to do that. So while there's some concept art, it's all just, a placeholder. Uh, These companies could each come up with very different proposals on how to achieve this same goal, and then ultimately NASA will select whichever one the agency feels is the most, the perfect one for their mission. Hard to say the best, because things like not just the technological capability, but also the price factor into this sort of stuff. Anyway, honestly, That's pretty much where Artemis shakes out today. It's a a lot of placeholders, even to this day. That still blows my mind, considering that the goal is to get boots on the moon by 2024. But then we've moved pretty quickly in the past in the space race. And honestly, this might be exactly what we need to drive innovation. So there are generally two paths you can take when you're making these sort of big, big programs. One is you can work on the technology that you're going to need for space exploration. And then you can set a timeline based on your progress as you produce these pieces of technology. But that opens up the chance for projects to fall into an observation called Parkinson's Law. That's named after Cyril Northcote Parkinson, a British author. And Parkinson observed that work tends to expand to fill the time available for it to be completed. So for example, let's say I'm researching a podcast and initially I have a deadline of four hours to finish my research before I have to go into the studio. And that means it's gonna take me four hours to complete that research. I've got it all planned out. I'm ready to go. I'm hitting the ground running. I'll be done in four hours. But let's say that something happens. Let's say that there's another podcast in the studio where I was supposed to go in. They're running late. Then I'm told, hey, it's actually going to be two hours later than what you thought. Now you have six hours to finish that research. Well, according to Parkinson's law, the, the, the work of that research will actually expand for that six hours. That does not necessarily mean that the podcast I record is going to be longer than it would have been if it had stated its original studio time, or that it'll even be better than it would have been when I was supposed to go in. Rather that just the work itself expanded to fill in those extra two hours. So let's say we're working on a project and we're not sure how long it's gonna take us to complete this project, but we're supposed to give an estimate. So if we're conservative, then we'll give an estimate that's further out than what we think we actually need. And the idea being, well, things are going to pop up, we're going to have to deal with them. So let's let's plan for it to take 20 days, but we think it's really going to only take 10. Well, according to Parkinson's law, the work we're doing is actually going to expand to fill up those extra 10 days. So at the end, we're going to say, boy, aren't we glad we said 20 days? Because it turned out that's how long we needed. But there's also the possibility that you could have completed it in 10 days and that you really just allowed the work to expand to fill that space. That if you had given a 10-day deadline, you still would have gotten the work done. There is a diminishing return here, though. There is a point where you might give a deadline that's just too aggressive, right? That maybe you say, oh, it's going to take us five days when you really think it's going to take you 10. And you're doing it so that you motivate yourself. But turns out you've sabotaged the whole project because there's just no way to get it all done in five days. That can also happen. So it's a delicate line you have to to walk, right? So Parkinson's law is really more about how we let time get away from us or how we allow bureaucracy to play a large role in things or otherwise bog ourselves down in the stuff that keeps us from getting the core work done. However, it does not mean we can set these arbitrarily short deadlines and then magically get things done faster. As I said, there is that tipping point that you have to look at. NASA's approach is to set aggressive but potentially achievable deadlines. That in turn sets expectations and the pace of work. It also gets people into the habit of looking at practical approaches. If the goal is to get people back on the moon by 2024, what are the things that have to happen in order to achieve that goal? If we're going to send people to Mars in the following decade, in 2030s, what do we absolutely have to have nailed down to make that happen? Rather than just having feature creep come in, where we say, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we also added this? By saying these aggressive goals, you kind of push feature creep to the side because you say, listen, our main concern is getting this to happen by this date. The things that would be nice are out of the discussion because that doesn't contribute to what we actually have as our goal. So that's kind of what happened in the 1960s to, to... large extent. And it does work as a motivating factor to a a certain level. Now, besides, these, these timelines have to be aggressive anyway, because NASA can't count on having a budget sufficient for achieving its goals from one year to the next. Definitely not between presidential administrations. And there's the potential for the presidential administration to make a big change in 2020. So who knows what the next president might prioritize when it comes to budgets. So if they set longer timelines, if NASA said, "Okay, we're going to we're going to give ourselves more space, no pun intended, to get this stuff done, there'd be a lot more chances for things like budget cutbacks, which would sabotage a mission just as effectively as hitting some sort of technical or design challenge that would become harder to solve than you thought. NASA is moving forward with their goals though we're going to have to wait and see if they actually are achievable. But in the meantime, the agency has opened up the application process for people who are interested in becoming astronauts. Right now, the U.S. astronaut program has about 48 people in it. NASA needs more for this program to be workable. So it's possible someone listening to this podcast could be the first woman or the next man to set foot on the moon. To apply, you have to meet some pretty high standards, which, again, is understandable. There are three general types of folks that NASA's looking for during this application process. They're looking for people who hold at least a master's degree in a STEM-related field, so like engineering or astrophysics or something like that. They are also looking for people who are medical doctors. Uh, It gets more specific than that, but that's one of the three types. And the third are people who are certified test pilots. Those are the three types that NASA's looking for. So if you belong to one of those three groups, you can look into the requirements that NASA has in place to see if you meet all the criteria. The application process includes an online component for the very first time, which as I understand it, takes a couple of hours to complete. I wouldn't know because I don't meet the initial criteria, but maybe one of you guys can find out. And we'll have to wait and see if Artemis actually gets people to the moon. We just don't know if it's going to be possible yet. Uh, I have high hopes. I would love to see it happen. I don't know how useful it will be in the long term unless we're actually able to use the stuff we learn on the moon as a a platform for learning how we can get to Mars. But um, it's definitely something that is inspirational. And that alone has value. You just have to weigh that value against other considerations like risk and the uh, other goals that you have with the agency, because NASA is doing obviously a lot more than just these programs. And you don't want to have a big, high risk, high payoff project fail, like the Constellation project did, and potentially set the agency backward. So it's a complicated thing, but we'll have to keep our eyes open. I'm sure I'll do an update on this in the future once we know more about what the Artemis program is gonna be uh, moving forward and whether those deadlines stay in place or if they shift around. And in the meantime, if you guys have any suggestions for future topics, whether they're space-related or a tech company or some trend in technology you want to know more about, send me a message. You can contact me on social media at Facebook or Twitter. We are TechStuffHSW at both, and I'll talk to you again really soon.